We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Ghana people, the traditional custodians whose ancestral lands we've recorded this podcast on. We acknowledge the deep feelings of attachment and the relationship of the Ghana people to country, and we respect and value their past, present and ongoing connection to the land and cultural beliefs. Hello and welcome to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. My name is Ali Clark and I'll be your host as we unpack the leadership journey brought to you by Professional and Continuing Education at the University of Adelaide. The podcast will bring you all the tools, tips and insights to help you unlock your leadership potential and get the most from your team. We'll be talking to South Australian leaders from all walks of life as they share their leadership stories and we'll support your lifelong learning with the latest leadership thinking and advice from the university facilitators to provide the essential guide to levelling up your leadership. Today's guest leads one of South Australia's largest community-based volunteer organisations. Now, each day, the much-loved Meals on Wheels SA delivers 4,000 meals across the state and supports 11,000 people annually. Now, leading the organisation is our guest, Chief Executive Officer Sharon Brewer, who is responsible for 80 branches, 60 staff and more than 7,000 volunteers. Hello. Let's start how we always start these podcasts. What do you think it means to be a leader? I think that's a question that that I could answer on a whole lot of levels. So in terms of, you know, what do I think is leadership? I think leadership is um, being willing to step up and take responsibility for making a whole lot of choices. So leaders are effectively the person who is working out what's the direction that we need to go in what are the choices that we've got about where we go? And then once we've kind of worked out where we're going, what's the best way for us to get there? So to me, leadership is an act. It's a doing word and it's a team sport. It's something that you need to have great people around you. You It's not something that you can do on your own. But actually people are looking for someone to make that final call. We get completely confused and and anxious as human beings if there's not that one person who's um, willing to sort of take that responsibility. So I sort of see it as a a pretty responsible, humbling uh, thing that a person can do. Have you always thought about it in the same ways? No, probably not. I I think early on I thought, yeah, the leader is in a way, the boss. The leader's the person who's in control or in charge. And when I was a kid, you might have seen that meme that says, I'm not bossy, I've got leadership skills. Yeah, I'm sure that that was said about me a fair bit of the time, that I I actually just wanted to be in charge. Mm -hmm. You didn't happen to be the eldest daughter, did you? I'm I'm the only daughter, middle middle child, yeah. Hello, yeah, as as the eldest daughter. Hello, I remember that meme. Yes, yes. But your career, and I guess that's why I wanted to ask whether or not the way that you have looked at leadership has changed, because your career you actually started in a clinical area, didn't you? Yes. And um, role as an occupational therapist. So how do you go from something that is involved in that all the way through to focusing and progressing up to such an important leadership role and roles that you have now? It was, I think, the drive to be a leader was something that was a bit in, innate in, in me. So I've had leadership roles, whether they've been formal or informal through schooling and university. And, and I think even as a graduate, you can be a leader. You might not have a formal leadership role, but you can exercise sort of leadership behaviours and, and leadership capacity. And so, so actually from a career point of view, my career aspiration didn't have the word leader in it. My career aspiration was I wanted to be the chief OT of a 
teaching hospital in Adelaide by the age of 30. And so in a way, you could say I was on a management track rather than a, than a leadership track. I actually got there too. I did, I did become the chief OT of the Northwest Adelaide Health Service. And within about six months, I realised that I hated it. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't the job per se. It wasn't being the leader, but it was kind of the environment yeah, that I right. was working in and the sort of role that I had. But certainly in, in um, I was a public servant. So as a state public servant, there was only so far my career could progress as I could be the greatest occupational therapist in South Australia at something and my my career would have topped out, stop. um, yeah. you know, at a at a fairly sort of junior level. So management track was important. What was that moment like to know that you'd worked all this time? You would set this goal. I'm presuming maybe coming out as a graduate, whatever <laughs> yeah, it might have been, yeah. even before that. So you'd set this goal, and then you get to your goal, you get there, and then you work out. Oh, this isn't what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was actually quite sobering. So was it a time in my life when? I was um, hoping to start a family. I'd spent probably at that stage five or six years working in community services, so older people, people with a disability. And in that, you get to have a longitudinal view of the impact that you're having on people's lives. Mm -hmm. Whereas in acute hospital, it's a little bit production line yeah. and your job is to help people get home as quickly as possible and then once they get home and you can do a great plan and do some great treatment to help them get to that point but then you never know what happened next in, in that person's life and, and also I think acute teaching hospitals tend to be a little bit hierarchical and allied health is not at the top of the pecking order there so that was a challenge for me as well. So then in that did you learn about leadership styles you didn't like? Yeah yeah I think you know I was always driven to be at the table where the decisions were made and so I've got I really want to have influence want to help make not just decisions but good decisions mm. and things that are going to improve people's lives and so I kind of you know thought that as a leader of a, a, an important department that was providing allied health services in the hospital that my point of view might have, or my team's point of view might have had an impact. But in fact, it wasn't. It was sort of like specialists, doctors, nurses, mm -hmm. everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and so if my suggestion was not aligned with what the more powerful sort of influential groups were, then yeah, we were sort Would of have been frustration yeah, and everything yeah, else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have that realisation, then how do you take steps to go, right, I'm walking away from this goal? Yeah. I am Because a lot of people I don't know would be able to recognise it within six months. A lot of people yeah. would then pay, maybe not be able to move on from it and move out into something else. So how did you then, I guess, reset your focus that leadership was the way and you wanted to move away in a different direction? Yeah, so I... I was blessed in a sense because that role was a secondment. So my okay. substantive job was still there, which was which is a leadership role, but, you know, one rung down. And when the role I'd been acting in was made permanent and I was encouraged to apply, I just said, no, I don't think that this is for me. And I think it was about having a sense of, you know, where can I apply my talents that are going to make more of a difference? So I actually was able to go back to my um, substantive role, which was in domiciliary care, supporting mm -hmm. um, people in the community. And I knew that in that role, not only would I be able to apply my leadership skills and um, influence appropriately, 
but I would also get that work-life balance that I, um, by that stage, I, I knew I was pregnant and I knew that I was going to be a working mum. Mm. And so being able to be in a role where I could balance those two things and work part-time in a quite senior leadership role was much more interesting to me and, and engaging for me than sort of sticking it out in the the job that I thought was the pinnacle of, you know, my occupational therapy career. You now lead an organisation that has 60 staff and more than 7,000 volunteers. How's the work-life balance with that? Uh, not great. I'm, I'm probably a really bad role model for, um, for work-life <laughs> balance. Fortunately, my children are adults now and both more or less moved out of home. So I'm not having to do that juggle anymore. That was has, has always been a bit of a challenge. But yeah, it's it's long days. It's, you know, needing to work on weekends. But I do try, I try not to start work. I start looking at emails at about 7.30 in the morning. When I'm commuting to work, I might be on the phone to a colleague interstate. I tend to sit at my desk and not take lunch breaks. So, but then I'll leave at about half past six, seven o'clock at night, and that's it. I won't, I won't do any more work until the next day. And I try and preserve time to hang out with my husband and my kids, and um, you know, walk in nature and and do some some really crazy things. One of the craziest things to me that um, people would never have imagined me doing. I um, I like to relax by playing Dungeons and Dragons. Get out, <laughs> D and D girl. Yeah. So I. I came to that in my 50s when I was at a you know point in my life where I kind of didn't quite know where I fit in anymore. I was, and my husband, who's been playing these sorts of things all his life, just said, well, why don't you join out? You know, you need yeah, to do yeah. something where you're using a really different part of your brain. It's completely different to, to what you're doing. So when I'm playing D&D, I deliberately don't take the leadership role. So I'm the I'm the newbie in the group. And is that hard or is that um, freeing? It's a little it's a little freeing, and but it's it actually helps you develop teamwork and you're sort of playing this character, and so you need to you need to approach a problem or a situation as your character would, not as Sharon would. And yeah, so I've got two characters ah. and, and two different um, campaigns that we play. And that's, yeah, one of the things that I do to really switch off. Because a lot of people would say leadership is innate. It's something that you can't switch off. But mm. I guess this is a way that you have been able to find to do just yeah. that and give yourself that mental break. Oh, it can be challenging. There's a couple of alpha people in the, in this group. And so, yeah, I sort of deliberately... Mm. Try not to be the one to, you know, call the shots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We talk about the number of people that you oversee just in South Australia alone and why you might not have direct contact with them. You know, when you're dealing with staff plus a huge cohort of volunteers, that must throw up a whole heap of challenges. How is it different managing and leading people that you're paying? Yeah. And managing and leading people that you may never meet, may never see, and you'll never pay. They're volunteering yeah. for this organisation. Yeah. We have, um, you know, every day more than um, 750 different volunteers rock mm. up at more than 80 different locations around the state. And I do try and get out and meet as many of those people as, as I can. But I think the really, the key difference is with employees, you've got both carrot and stick. With volunteers, you need a really big carrot and lots of them, nice juicy carrots. So, mm -hmm. so with volunteers, you're really trying to tap into people's, you know, intrinsic motivations rather than reward. Um, yep. You know, you don't have the same kind of 
contract industrial relationship with a volunteer is what you do with an employee. So when you, you know, we, we do need our volunteers to behave in in a way that's consistent with our values, to be providing excellent customer service, to be reliable, responsible, all of those things. But with an employee, you've got the expectations that are there in the employment contract that say, well, you need to turn up on time, you need to be reliable, you need to hit your KPIs. And if you don't, there's performance management processes. And sadly, if you know mm. if things don't work out, you're going to lose your job. And so if somebody's income's dependent on doing all of those things, there's a pretty strong motivator there. But it's amazing with that with our volunteers that what we try and tap into there is not only the good that they're doing and the benefit that they're creating, but trying to reflect back to them the benefit that they're receiving from that role. But yeah, it's a challenge and, and our volunteers average age is about 70. Mm. So a lot of people have been through a work life and they don't want to think of themselves like an employee. So when you have work health and safety and food safety and other sort of regulatory overlay and the volunteers need to sort of meet that, it's challenging to try and persuade people that unfortunately we can't get away. Negotiable. Yeah, yeah, we can't get away without that. I mean, then I guess you do throw in the pandemic and won't it be great if we have to stop referring to you yes. know, things that have come out of the pandemic, but we know across the board, volunteer numbers are down. A lot of yep. people have to move away from it and they haven't necessarily come back. Mm. But also the way that we work has changed remarkably. Yeah. So you would have a very different set of tools to reach your volunteers that yes. maybe they weren't as comfortable with. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because we're an essential service. We didn't experience the drop in volunteer numbers that we, we thought, which was good. We also put a call out to the community and within a three-week period, we had three years' worth of volunteer inquiries. So we were able to get an extra 2,500 temporary volunteers available during that time. But because Meals on Wheels is, has been a kind of very distributed model, we've had these self-organising teams of volunteers doing their local, not only delivering the service, but organising mm. and managing the service locally as well. So we already were quite skilled at doing the you know, remote work, the Zoom meetings, you know, our IT systems were set up for people to be able to work from anywhere. So you were ready for the pandemic before anyone else was almost. Yeah, Yeah, but we have some challenges with communication. So some, some of our volunteers might connect with Meals on Wheels for an hour a month and some might be with us for 30 hours a week, you know, salt of the earth people who are just so dedicated to making sure that we, we have well-fed and, and well-connected people in the community. So the less connection that a person has, and it's like having a highly casualised workforce and a highly distributed workforce, making sure that you're sort of communicating with those people. And we, we have to use just multiple channels. So yeah. word of mouth is still really important for, for a lot of people. Some are quite digitally literate, others not so. So we just need to keep using lots of different channels to try and have two-way communication. Probably one of the other things I find with volunteers, and I don't know whether it's a characteristic of the, you know, slightly older demographic that we're working with or not, but volunteers don't hold back on giving me feedback yeah. directly. You know, that they, they, they're not worried about, oh, that could be a, you know, career limiting um, comment to make. They, mm. they will because be absolute... essentially, what are you going to do? Yeah. 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 They're, yeah. they're very direct in their feedback. What's been the most challenging 
either way, some direct feedback has been given to you or the most challenging feedback that you've received? Oh, good question. I think it's when, for me, things that are sort of personalised. So if usually there's a change, something's happened, people don't like the change. And if the feedback comes in a way that sort of feels personal, that it's challenging my integrity or my intent, that really sort of upsets me the most. Often it's, uh, you know, we're all keyboard warriors these mm-hmm. days. So mm-hmm. a lot of it comes through email. There's very little that's sort of face, face-to-face. Mm. And often it's easier when it's face-to-face because you can really defuse that and ask questions and, you know, mm. how, what brings you to that point and I respect your point of view and you, you can have that conversation. But when it just sort of comes through as a, as a blast, whether it's into my inbox, whether it's on our social media channels or those kinds of things, then that that can be more difficult. So then how do you as a leader deal with that, Mm. given if it's personalised in nature, you're probably dealing with a little bit of grief yourself, but it also might have to put that aside at times because you've then got to get on with either protecting other people that might have been involved in the, you know, direct response, um, but then also learn from it. So how do you lead through that? Uh, I think you need to be really tuned into your own emotional responses and accept that they happen, recognise them, but don't let that emotional response drive your behaviour. So it's important to disassociate a little bit feedback is just a data point. So I can make a choice about how I'm going to respond to to somebody's um, feedback. And and sometimes I can kind of run up the ladder and and down again really sort of quickly, but monitoring my own sort of responses, choose my emotion, choose my reaction and kind of go, okay, is this feedback actually valid? I might not like the mode of delivery. I might not like the tone. There might be things about it that I don't like. But is this is there mm. actually something in this that I need to learn from or modify my approach or adjust? Or, so where's the learning in this, if any? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been a leader in, um, we've heard, non-government and government. You mm-hmm. touched on a little bit of limitation that you felt in the public service in that you could only reach a certain way yeah. in that current role you're in. What are some of the other differences that you see leading mm. in those both those types of organisations. So I was I was uh, working as a leader in the state government and always in a service delivery part of government rather than in the policy and funding part. So what you find working within government is it's a very large organisation with mature systems and processes and reasonably good resources. Whether it's your HR procurement, those sorts of things. And there's a lot of rules and the rules can be really helpful sometimes, but other times it can slow down decision making, you know, and sometimes there's sort of a political overlay as well. You might have the best idea in the world, but mm-hmm. it's not going to get go forward because there's a sort of a political policy issue that's going to sort of get in the way of doing that. Well, and the um, nature is that the policy and the politics will change or could change absolutely. after an election. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, you, you know, three, four-year cycles, um, almost inevitably, you know, trying to trim away budget pressures and uh, and so on would eat into your capacity. So that was so, sort of some of the, the, the things. I found as a public servant a lot of investment in me as an employee and in my development and my learning. So that was a really strong benefit. And that might have been because I was in the health part of Mm -hmm. um, the public service, but that was really positive, really good focus on quality and and systems. And and so they were some really good things. But in the non-government sector, you have a lot more freedom and you can be a lot more direct. So as a um, 
Chief Executive of Meals on Wheels SA and, and, and President of Meals on Wheels Australia, I can go and talk directly to ministers and advisors and talk about aged care reform and talk about what would be a great way of servicing older people in their homes in the future. And as a public servant, I could never mm. um, have those conversations or, you know, far too junior to do that. I could talk directly to the media. I could promote my service. Um, I didn't have to go through layers of, you know, minders who would sort of be sanitising messages and, and things like that. And if we needed to do something, I I was working directly with my board on process. So, you know, I could, if I wanted to hire somebody, I could hire them. If I wanted to bring in a consultancy firm and we had a business case. I didn't necessarily have to get three written quotes and all of those other sort of um, things that you that you have there. It sounds like nimble isn't yeah, the word. Yeah. You, you can be a lot more nimble. Yeah. Or you've found a yes. lot more nimble in yeah. the private arena. You mentioned working under a board. Mm. In a leadership position and the ones that you've been in, how much of that is managing up? And how uh, and how important is that compared to managing down? Oh, equally important. So my role at Mills and Wills was the first time that I was directly reporting to a board. So I've got currently ten bosses, collectively one, as the board is a you know an entity. Were and you nervous um, given that change or not? No, not really, because I had been used to sort of advising up to executive anyway, directors yep. and CEOs of departments, and so it was it was different and. In terms of my performance management, it's a smaller group of board members that support me in, in my role and make sure that I'm hitting my KPIs and that sort of thing. But there is a challenge as a CEO in it's my job to actually help the board be the best that it can be for the benefit of the organisation. The board's accountable to the members and the members are our volunteers and so it's a little bit sort mm-hmm. of circular in, in that. But we're all stewards of the legacy of a 70-year-old, iconic South Australian community service organisation and so we kind of take that responsibility pretty seriously. And so I see my role as providing advice and suggestions to the board and we work together a lot on where do we need to be heading? Where are the opportunities? Where are the risks? Are we resourced to do what we need to do? Are we being true to our vision and our, our values? And and so vision, mission and values is really our North Star and helps in all of that engagement. And how often do you refer to the, that mantra when you are about to make a decision in your day-to-day work life? Probably not consciously, a lot, but in the in the big decisions, like yeah. are we, you know, what what what's the role of Meals on Wheels with respect to NDIS participants? What's the you know what's the role of Meals on Wheels when we've got issues of homelessness? You know, what's our place there? Then we go back to well, what's our reason for existence? What's our our vision? How are we delivering on our mission, uh, which is about being supporting people to be well-nourished and independent in their communities and, and, and socially connected. And so, you know, one of the examples a little while back was we would, we started talking about, well, what could we do in addition to bringing somebody a nourishing meal to their home and bringing that social contact to their front door? And so we've expanded into more group programs and we have pub lunches and cafe things and, and we support people to learn skills in preparing their own meals. So, so mm-hmm. it's kind of taking that on board the values absolutely is there about um you know i don't run through a mental checklist but for decision making uh our values are about acting with integrity 
treating people with respect, being caring, caring as an organisation, caring of each other, being positive and being collaborative. And we couldn't actually work, do our work if we weren't collaborative. We, we rely on teamwork all day, every day. Um, but we also have to collaborate with external partners, with funders, mm. with with donors, with stakeholders all, all over the place. So, yeah, very – it's just almost a little bit ingrained now. Yeah. Um, and pretty important that my personal values are really strongly aligned with the organisational values. Have you ever been in a situation where that wasn't the case and you had to then act on it? Probably slightly. No, I don't think that's happened. I was really challenged as a leader in my – previous role because of some restructuring that was happening within the um, uh, department that that we were part of and and our organisation had sort of shifted from Department of Health to another government department and then it felt like all of the value that had been created in our organisation was sort of gradually being stripped away and Mm -hmm. I'd sort of finally worked myself up to being the most senior uh, person in that organisation, the leader of that organisation, and the next step was going to be dismantling something that I'd worked for to build. more than a decade to to build, and I yeah, yeah I, I I couldn't. And so for you, yeah. that was walking away. Yeah. yeah, well, partly that. And lots of Dungeons and Dragons. No, yeah. well, not at that time oh. in my life. No, <laughs> no, coming. but that was when that was when I moved to to Mills on Wheels. But it was interesting because I I had progressed in my career in the public service with a whole lot of acting roles, and my substantive position was you know three or four rungs down the the pecking order, and I wasn't in the permanent executive service. And so when there was some restructuring, the role that I was in was not going to exist anymore. There wasn't a job for me at that level mm-hmm. and there were a lot of other unassigned executives who were going to get considered before I could be, no matter what my merit and my performance had been in in that role. And so it was at that stage that I thought, look, I'm, um, I've grown enough. I don't see myself back in my substantive role. I don't actually want to be part of dismantling something that I've loved and, and believed, in. And, believed yeah. in. and so I did start looking outside and I landed on my feet um, finding Meals on Wheels, which had um, some really terrific alignment with what I was bringing into the role as well as mm. what it was going to provide for me. You spoke about change and how uh, people's response to change can sometimes be a challenge to mm-hmm. help lead. You initiated probably the single biggest infrastructure investment in Meals on Wheels SA's history, $22 million Hilton headquarters and kitchen facility. What was the reaction like from the stakeholders in yeah. and around it? Because that is a big number and a really big investment. Yes. I could imagine some would have been a bit fearful. Yeah, it was an interesting one. So if we go back, um, so Mills on Wheels likes to own property. We don't like to um, mm-hmm. lease and we don't like to take on debt. So we had, since the early 1990s, had had built up a capital investment fund. And with that, we had built new kitchens in suburbs for our branches to operate in. And we lost a lot during the GFC and then it built up again. And so we had this nice little sort of nest egg. But the driver was not, oh, we've got some money, we should spend it. The driver was that the um, existing properties were dangerously not fit for purpose. And so particularly our capacity to, to produce food that was going to meet all of the food safety requirements. We had had some instances of food becoming contaminated mm-hmm. in one of our premises. So we couldn't stay there and it wasn't going to meet the growth need that we had. So we had a pretty big burning platform to do something differently. 
And then there was quite a lengthy process of working through the board because we did have some board members who thought that this was too big an investment to make. So we have a um, one of the sort of underlying values of Meals on Wheels is a, is a value of frugality. And I think a lot of charities have that. Yeah. When, yep. when you're relying on the goodwill of people's donated labour, when you're relying on fundraising as well as our consumers need to pay towards the cost of their service and we need to keep that at an affordable point. So it was kind of balancing up, you know, what's the right move here? And there was no alternative that was going to maintain the reliability and quality and safety of the food other than us keeping all of that in-house. So it took us a while to find the right property. The total project ended up costing more than we anticipated. But Don't they always? I know. (laughs) All, All along the way, we had the alignment with this is absolutely essential and we included staff in, mm. uh, you know, working out how we were going to sort of set the place up. The location was very much kind of driven by the board. And that narrowed down our options and we wanted to be on the north-south corridor and we were really fortunate we found a perfect place to, to do that. And then in terms of actually building, we went with some terrific architects and others and And we wanted to make sure that the building reflected our organisational values too. So it had to be contemporary and functional, but not flashy. So I couldn't justify sitting in a a building that was Mm. grand when most of our work is done in pretty Spartan uh, kitchens out in in the communities around South Australia. Communication of all of that must have been key. Yes. You know, and, and you say that a lot of your volunteers, for example, like word of mouth, and we know that that can sometimes spin a little bit out of control. So you must have had a really specific way to communicate this investment to all of them. Yes. Yeah. We did have um, some face-to-face meetings. We used our local branch meetings where we could, and we used uh, external communication to the community as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it sounds like one of your drivers might be continual learning for yes. yourself. Yes. Um, and you learn, obviously, on the different roles and you seem very, very self-aware of what is important to you, which not everybody can be. Um, you've done a significant amount of postgraduate study and mm-hmm. executive leadership courses and everything else. Why did you think taking an external course would be necessary for you as opposed to the lessons you learn in life? Sure. I've had the same job title for the last 13 years, but my job's not the same. And the world that we're operating in isn't the same. And, you know, we talk about volatility and uncertainty and ambiguity and all of those sorts of things. So what got me to where I was when I started this job 13 years ago wasn't going to be enough to get me to where we needed to be as an organisation. So if I if I don't develop and grow, I'm stifling the organisation's development and growth. And if the organisation doesn't develop and grow, then it fails. And if it fails, then I feel that I fail. So I recognise that sometimes it's a technical skill. So um, what is it that we collectively or I need to be better at doing? And you know, one of the things that we recognised in my leadership team is we're really great at planning. We're fantastic ideas people, come up with all the best ideas, not too bad at planning, but we weren't always delivering on those wonderful plans that we had. And 
execution is a real challenge for a lot of leaders. Strategy, we get taught strategy. We don't really get taught execution. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I wanted to learn was was how do you get better at executing? And so we, the team, learnt, my leadership team learnt a way of, um, of improving that. Also, I've been doing more vertical development rather than horizontal. So horizontal development as a leader is where you just keep adding things to your toolkit, learning a new process, learning more about project management or learning more about cybersecurity or whatever the thing is that you need to learn. Whereas vertical development is about you as a person and it's important as our world gets more and more uncertain, leaders need to be better and better at self-management and self-recognition mm-hmm. and kind of understanding our own worldview and how what, how we're sort of turning up and what's driving that and how we can be more aware of our emotions. And, and so I've been involved in some leadership development that was actually about me as a leader and where I'm at on that journey and what more I can be sort of doing. And that's kind of shifted my approach. It's, um, I've tried to shift from being the superhero to the conductor of the orchestra. So I've, I've had a bit of a tendency to try and come in and save the day. And you can get a lot of self-esteem out of being seen as, you know, the, mm. the, the hero. But actually, that only gets you so far. So you, you need to actually be better at working with and through other people than always um, than doing that. The other thing that that I've done, and I'm I'm a fairly intentional learner. I I know that doing you know formal postgraduate study is challenging for me. I have done some of that, but just with my work life balance, one week intensives and yeah, things yep. like that work better for me. And so one of the the programs was around leading change and organisational renewal, and that was about how organisations that have become great doing things in certain things in a particular way need to um, pivot. This was before the great pandemic pivot, pivot was a, was a word, um, but need to sort of reinvent themselves. And so our organisation certainly had over a long period of time had grown and then kind of stabilised and was starting to go into decline. And so I wanted to really learn different ways to investigate that, you know, what was actually happening here and then what were the actions that I could then, what were the levers I could pull Mm. that would actually get us back into a growth trajectory. When you say that there is a growing importance for leaders to be self-aware, when do you find that space to recognise areas that you do well or you can improve? Is it when you go home at night and you can't sleep or is it in the moment and you walk out of a meeting think, oh, maybe I should have handled that differently? You know, do you set aside time to do that? A uh, little, little bit of both. I try and set aside a bit of reflecting time, but often it does happen when I'm in the car going mm-hmm. to and from work or when I'm going for a walk or I try and catch it sort of in the, in the moment as well. And So I actively seek feedback, whether that's through a 360-degree sort of formal appraisal, whether it's just asking somebody, how do you think that went? And, uh, yeah, just sort of checking. But now it's actually really thinking a little bit more deeply. So, you know, actually recognising, say, before a meeting, I'm feeling really angry about this and I might be feeling angry at somebody because of what mm-hmm. I perceive they did or didn't do and and sort of recognising, well, 
I could choose to go into this meeting feeling angry or I could choose a different approach. What if I chose to be curious? So if I can set aside judgment for a minute and just start asking questions to understand the other person's point of view, I still might not like whatever the situation is or the circumstance, but I'm likely to get further. I'm likely to get more um, of a resolution. And then, yeah, sometimes it's just like, okay, so why did that push my buttons? What was it about that situation that really got under my skin? Listening to you, and I imagine lots of people listening right now would be sitting there going, wow, she sounds like she has got it going on. Like She sounds that she is across everything and she knows who she is and therefore knows the best way to get things out of other people. Is there still a weakness or a chink in your armour that you want to continue to improve? Yeah, it's hard to put a, a name to what that yeah, is. Yeah. Um, there's there's always things that I want to be doing differently. You know, just recently I, I came to a realisation I've been leading the our national body for five years as the, as the um, president, but even before that as the, the National Secretary. And and I was starting to think, hmm, you know, maybe maybe actually the best thing for the organisation is for me to step aside because I'd sort of recognised maybe there were some perceptions about my engagement with certain stakeholder groups that wasn't working. It doesn't mean that I was necessarily doing the wrong thing, but mm-hmm. it, just, it just wasn't working. It needed a new approach and it actually needed a new face. And so to have the courage to say, I need to let this go. The best thing, actually best thing for me too, but the best thing to get the best outcome, I need to let this go and let somebody else have a turn at it and somebody else can take the lead for a while. Those times just sort of understanding mm. when when is it okay not to be the leader? When is it okay to stand aside? When is it okay to sort of support other people to to blossom and and to come through that's sort of something really that I'm working on at, at the moment and and trying to pay it forward as well I'm really enjoying mentoring other leaders and and seeing them develop mm-hmm. yeah to finish given all of that and given the change you know even even the different ways that you have now changed you know external learning you know from that horizontal to the vertical mm-hmm. for you now what have you learned if you can find one Two things, three, whatever it is. But mm-hmm. what have you learnt from being a leader that you wish you knew way back at the start of your career? I think a couple of things. One, one is the leader doesn't have to be the best technician or the best, uh, the smartest person in the room. The leader actually needs to be able to ask great questions, to be curious and to um, draw out the strengths and capacities of other people and try and understand and get to the nub, nubby bit, the, the root of the issue. So you don't, you actually don't have to have the answer or be the one that comes up with the answer all the time. So that was one one learning. And the other one was, yeah, you don't have to, you know, be the Cape Crusader and, and come in and save the day that you can actually achieve objectives without always needing to be the you know, the hero. Sharon Brewer, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you get back to running this incredible organisation and hopefully getting yourself some D&D time very, very soon. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's been fascinating. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow Pace at the University of Adelaide on LinkedIn for more on how you can take your career to new heights.